if you haven't found it, keep looking and don't be afraid to try and fail at stuff because that's how you learn. And I don't know, I just, I can't imagine if I was still working in my job that like was just sort of a mediocre existence. It wasn't miserable, but like it wasn't what I was made to do. Is this ever going to go anywhere? And I think if it had never made a dime or probably even more importantly, if there was never any traffic coming to the website, I probably would not have stuck with it. Yeah, you know, it's actually interesting. I haven't thought about that in a while, but I believe the actual genesis of this. I was doing this attempted software partnership. And I think when it comes to direct mail, like probably the single most important thing, if you had to distill it down, is... And that's actually been a constant battle to this day. Did I just get lucky? Like, is this going to continue? Like, is it going to take me this long all the time to sell properties? Name is Seth Williams, 37 years old, live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And my primary business today is running a website called retipster.com, RE for real estate. And the main idea behind the website is, you know, I'm essentially a blogger and a YouTuber. And the whole idea behind it is to build a community around real estate investing in general. And it all kind of started when I just decided to start putting my own ideas and thoughts and experiences out onto the internet, just explaining what things had worked well for me as a real estate investor, what kinds of things blew up in my face and didn't work well. And just kind of sharing a lot of the stuff that took me years to figure out, you know, everything from how to write a good property listing, how to find deals, how to get stuff sold, how to handle other weird nuances and intricacies of the real estate business. So it kind of started with just me putting my thoughts out there, but it's evolved quite a bit now. And we've got like a forum and an online community where there's really a lot of brilliance that comes from other people who are on the site and who put their own thoughts and experiences out there. And it's kind of just this big group collaboration effort now where people can come and learn from each other and occasionally learn from the stuff I put out there. So when you were younger, did you always think you were going to be a blogger? No, really all of the stuff, there's sort of like three different angles of it, you know, being this mediapreneur type or whatever you call people like me. There's the, you know, being able to explain things well in the written word, which I never thought I was good at that. I did horrible in English when I was in college and I just, I never thought that was me. I don't even really enjoy reading that much, to be honest with you. And even the podcast is just challenging. But I think the reason it works out is because I really care about what I'm doing. I get really excited about it. And I've been on the other side of just struggling and not understanding how things work. And when you sort of see the light from the other end and you realize, oh, that's how it all comes together. And you can be the person who delivers that aha moment to a person. Pretty cool to be part of that. But it all started off as kind of a blog. And then you graduated to video and a podcast from retipster.com. Video has been something I've done kind of since the beginning. I wouldn't say it's like the main driver behind everything, but video just happens to be a really helpful tool to explain certain things and how certain things work. And even myself, like if I'm given the choice to either watch a video or read something, I'll usually watch the video. So I want to make sure I'm delivering things in a way that, you know, that crowd can also easily consume it. And so how big is RE Tipster today? Like, I guess, revenue or can you give us some idea behind page views or whatever to get a grasp of how big your company is? You know, it's not like the biggest of communities out there, but it's a pretty well-respected name, I think, in the real estate investing space online. In terms of like page views and that kind of thing, I think it's bounced around a bit, but it's I think it's currently around 150,000 monthly unique page views. It's kind of a multifaceted thing. Like we get revenue from a bunch of different places and RE Tipster as a whole I think it's somewhere around like 50,000 bucks a month we're making. So it's not like the biggest of online communities, but it's not insignificant either. And it comes from a number of different sources. Some of it is ads that we run on our site. Some of it is, you know, we have a couple courses that we sell. Some of it is affiliate income. Some of it's from YouTube ads. I've also got individual like digital downloads that I sell. And when it all kind of adds up, it becomes a nice source of income. You don't have to downplay your success. I can tell you're one of those guys, huh? I don't know. Maybe. 600K a year, if you're saying 50,000 a month, right? In revenue? Yep. I mean, I think most people who are listening now is just like, that's pretty awesome. I mean, as far as like starting off with a real estate blog and what has grown to, I guess, you've been doing it for a little over eight years or so. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess it's all kind of relative. I'm totally content. I don't feel like I'm wanting for anything. 
But in terms of like, I'm awesome compared to this person, that person, I don't feel like I'm really better than anybody. It's just sort of, you know, I'm good with it. <laughs> right. It's again, not to always compare yourself because I find myself like sometimes I think you need to compare yourself to try to strive to be higher, I think, to a point. But I mean, anyone listening now who has no blog or anything would be like, wow, in eight years, maybe I could do that. Right. And it sounds like a long time. It kind of is. But I mean, that's pretty awesome because I can compare it to myself and I can guarantee you're making about, let's say, about 500 times more a month than I am. So, <laughs> you know, hey, man, don't compare yourself to anybody. Well, I'm just saying in general, <laughs> I mean, it, it's impressive because I'm in this space. And so as far as like education and trying to generate revenue from it, and mm -hmm. it's been hard as shit for me, man. And it's like, you know, so to see you be able to do that is pretty awesome. I mean, it gives me hope, you know, personally, and maybe that might give other people hope who are listening now and thinking of like how they could monetize a niche or try to figure out how they could grow a blog, if you will, into these other media entities. You know, it's kind of a, it's an interesting thing. Sometimes I think about like, what if I tried to redo this today in some just completely unrelated thing that has nothing to do with real estate? Like, could I do that if I started a blog about like, I don't know how to teach your cat to do tricks or some weird, obscure thing. And I think there's actually a number of things that sort of have to align. Like, first of all, you have to really love what it is, because if you don't love it, you're going to get burnt out really quick. And it's also got to be something that involves information that people are willing to pay for. And there's a lot of things that like people may very well think it's fun to read about it, but they're never going to pay you money for it. And also like even beyond you loving it, like you have to be good enough to be exceptional, at least at some point, so that like you stand out from all the other noise out there. And it's actually sort of a little miracle whenever I see it, when somebody is able to make it all work to the point where they can actually generate revenue, because a lot of things have to happen in conjunction. And also it helps when Google decides that you're worth showing to people and they help you rank and search that kind of thing. That's always a big deal. And so as far as your overhead, do you have any employees or anyone else helping you? Yeah. So I've got three employees, not including myself. One of them is a part-time virtual assistant. She's working like 20 hours a week and we've got a full-time Jaron. He's kind of like doing everything that I do sort of in terms of like content creation. He doesn't do any administrative stuff in the company, but just in terms of like making videos and blog posts. And he's got a really unique background. He's done a lot of the same stuff I've done. So he understands the dynamics of how the business works and how to answer people. And he's also really good at like just talking like he loves doing podcasts and videos and that kind of stuff. Whereas I'm more of an introvert, takes a lot of like energy for me to do it. So he kind of excels in certain ways that I don't. And I also have a full time editor in the Philippines who has been helping us build out this new section of our website. We're calling the terms library where it's we basically just take a lot of the confusing words and jargon in the real estate industry and we try to really explain what those things mean and how they work. Kind of like uh, Investopedia, but it's directed specifically at the real estate world. That was something I noticed way back when I used to work in banking. My first like year or so in that job, I heard so much like foreign stuff, just like people talking about weird acronyms and ratios. And I'm just like, what is everyone talking about? And I always thought it'd be helpful to have a section of our website just dedicated to explaining what that stuff means. Anyway, that's one of the main things our editor does is help us work on that. Obviously, kind of with this type of business, there isn't a lot of overhead, it sounds like, too, right? You know, they didn't used to be when it was just me. It was actually like super cheap to run. But now there's, you know, the more complex you make a website like this, the more expensive it can get fairly quickly. Hosting, it used to be expensive, but I moved to a new hosting company that's not too bad. But just little like widgets and add-ons and plugins for a website. But even that, I suppose... Comparatively speaking, like we don't have inventory costs or anything like that. So that's nice. And everything is pretty much digital online. So a lot of the stuff a conventional brick and mortar company would have to pay for, we don't. So it's been about eight years in the process of since you kind of started this company? Yep. Started off as just a kind of a part-time hobby thing, not knowing if it would go anywhere. And over time, as it's picked up steam, new things keep getting added and new complexities come into the mix. And yeah, it's an ongoing challenge to figure out how to manage it all. Can you give us just an idea of the expansion of your income and the site? And then we'll rewind it to even before, I guess, RE Tipster. But I'm just curious how long it took you to get here over this eight-year span as far as income and everything else? So let's see, I'm trying to think back in time. So for the first, like, it was at least a year of writing on Ari Tipster. I don't think it made anything. 
the first dollar of revenue that was ever made was when I put together this blog post talking about the direct mail pieces that I would use when I would send the mail out to motivated sellers to try to find deals and just trying to really spoon feed it to people without actually giving them the real thing. And then at the very bottom, I said, you know, I'm sure that you can do this yourself. I know you can. But if you'd rather just cut to the chase and use exactly what I'm using, you can download my postcard templates right here. And I had a price on there of seven bucks and it was totally arbitrary. I had no idea what it was actually worth. I just put it on there. And within like a day, I think your wife bought it. <laughs> my mom went on there and bought the first one. No, it was actually a guy that I knew. I recognized his name when it came through and he bought it. I was like, oh, it was nice of him to support me. And then the next day, somebody else bought it and it just kept selling. And I was like, this is cool. Just seeing it's not even the money, but just like seeing that somebody cares enough to actually buy this thing. And over time, I ended up upping the price. At one point, it was like 19 bucks and then I raised it to 29 and then to 47 and then to 97. And now it's on there, I think 147 bucks and people are still buying the thing. And honestly, like there's nothing like it works. And I think that's really what people are willing to pay for. Just the fact that like, this is what somebody has actually used. And these are the kind of results they got. And just the ability to not have to think through that themselves and like guess around and, you know, split test and all this stuff. Just having somebody who's like, hey, look, I can vouch for this. This worked for me. And that's worth a lot. It's not so much about the quantity or anything like that, but just I'm sure you've probably heard of, you know, sales copywriters who make like a hundred thousand bucks per job that they're hired for. And it's, you know, if you have something that converts, that's worth a lot. So year one, you made seven dollars. Yep. And then year two. <laughs> uh, so you I'm joking. You said you made money the next day and whatnot. Really, you went in with aspirations or that you thought I just need to put as much knowledge as I can first. So you weren't even trying to make money, I imagine year one. Yeah. And then the, I honestly don't remember what the exact dollars and cents were year by year, but. Yeah. It doesn't have to be just rough. Just so it gives anyone who's listening a thought process too, if that's okay. In that first year, it was probably like in the four figure range, nothing huge. The next year probably got into that five figure range really by me creating, seeing the opportunity with those postcard templates and being like, what's something else I could make here? What else have I used that I could package and explain the value of and sell and coming up with more of those things. And I believe it was in 2015. That was when more than a few people had said like, Hey, Seth, like, why don't you make a course? Like you've got good stuff all over your blog, but it's hard to find it. Like, what if you just put it together in a one, two, three step approach so that people can follow it and not have to search all over the place and miss stuff. And I was like, that's a good idea. But one of the big drawbacks I had was, I don't know how much you've followed different bloggers or information outlets in the real estate world, but there's sort of this, this is probably actually true in other industries too, but there's this idea of the guru, the person who's like out there just trying to sell millions of dollars with the overpriced courses with information that's just terrible and incomplete. And like that person is evil. Like they're a bad guy. And I knew that as soon as I created a course like that, something about that would like catapult me into this guru world where all of a sudden I'm that guy. And that's always like, I've worked so hard to be the opposite of that, to just like give away so much stuff so that a person could truly succeed without paying me a cent. Like that should be a possibility or I'm doing something wrong. So that was something like this big mental battle. Like I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to do it. But when I finally got over that and launched that course, it was kind of like turning to a new chapter of possibilities and of higher revenue. And at the same time, also creating this weird dynamic where like I had to really bend over backwards to not be perceived that way because that's not who I am. And I didn't want to be seen that way. But anyway, just in terms of revenue, I think it was probably a year after that. And I was like, okay, I'm officially done working a job. Like it's getting in the way now. I've got a lot of other stuff to do and the job is a bottleneck. And that was, I believe, February in 2016 was when I walked away from my job. Okay. So that's about four years in, right? So you're three in, you start doing the education and then you become the Tony Robbins of real estate. And then you're four, you quit your job. Yeah, exactly. You didn't like my joke there about Tony Robbins? No, I loved it. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, you didn't laugh. I, I got to tell my wife when I say a joke too, so that's all right. Really, ever since then, though, so this all kind of started, you know, the genesis of everything is me trying to buy and sell properties and having, you know, moderate success at that. And it wasn't until I tried to do this blogging thing when I realized, like, 
I'm kind of sort of good at this. And this is really fun. Like I really enjoy this process and seeing people's eyes open on the other side of it. And that was when I decided to shift most of my time each week to doing that and just a pretty minimal amount of time to pursuing the real estate deals. And that's actually been a constant battle to this day that I still have to balance because you have to keep doing the actual business or you won't have anything to talk about. And you also won't have any credibility, but like one business can easily consume way more than 40 hours a week. So how do you split that time between doing a good job at both of them? And for me, it really just came down to, you know, I'm going to pick the thing that I enjoy the most and put the bulk of my time there. And I'm going to make sure that I'm doing the other one to the extent that I am still seeing what's working. And the motivation behind deals that I do today isn't so much about like making me tons of money as it is about keeping my finger on the pulse of like, okay, this copy is still working well. This strategy is working well. This is how I can figure out what a good market is or what kind of markets are or aren't producing. This is what kind of software is working the best and that kind of thing. So I've never really claimed to be like the best at this business. It's just that I'm the person who is willing to put it all out there. I'm glad you're able to catch up and see those old group calls and those are definitely helping. Yeah, and probably the most helpful one has been with a gal that did PR. Megan Bennett. Yes, yes. Like I listened to that whole thing with all the people's questions and her ideas. And I like how, you know, you got her to tell more stories than just the regular interview. So I've listened to a number of podcasts and I actually, the guy that runs US staffing services, I've been talking to him about doing some work with him, with one of my businesses in the States. So I've linked in with people because of it as well. So it's been fantastic, like the, the kind of network you get. And I decided to increase my subscription to gain access to your extra Patreon content. As you've said in some of your adverts, it's paying it forward. I mean, obviously it's, it's hard for you to, to monetize what you're doing on a mass scale. So I decided it would be a good investment to get access to this stuff and join some of the group calls uh, with the other Patreon members and get access to better content. But going back to the timeline of RE Tipster, so five years in, you quit your job that you're doing before. So how much money were you making then where you felt comfortable like quitting and starting doing RE Tipster full time? Yeah, so that was like, I think that first year pulled in over a hundred grand on that. Like I didn't know that was going to be the end result. In fact, I was quitting my job with the plan that things would just be super sluggish and we would barely squeak by. Before we decided to officially quit, my wife and I put together what we call the apocalypse budget. Like if everything just hit the fan, absolute minimum we can survive on and still make our house payment, you know, feed ourselves and that kind of thing. And it was actually a really helpful exercise that I think everybody should do because it made me realize we don't actually need that much money. Like we have these jobs that make X number of dollars, but like who's to say that has to be the norm? Like what if we just got rid of one of our cars? And what if we didn't buy this super expensive thing every single week from the store? Like what if we just really pared it down? And when you quit your job, you're saying? Yep. Yeah, okay. exactly. And then it's kind of just the last three years has just taken off a lot more since you, I guess, were able to put more time into it. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I Looking at where I thought things were going to go, I actually thought Ari Tipsher would like have a lot more traffic and be a much more bigger mainstream presence out there. And it's definitely gone up, but the path has been different than I anticipated. And I think it's because probably 80% of our traffic always has come from organic search. Like people just, you know, how do I figure out the value of this piece of land or how do I do this or that? And we will show up because our articles are really comprehensive and well done. But over time, like some of that information becomes outdated or somebody else on some other website writes another great article and they start outranking us. So it's kind of like, yeah, two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. Just kind of trying to stay on top of things and stay relevant. But through all that, yeah, we've found other ways to like create new revenue streams. It's just been a interesting process, but a fun, good one overall. I mean, it's got to be hard too to rank in SEO and real estate. I imagine there's a bunch of real estate sites and forms, whatnot, right? I mean, as far as you staying up to date, but you say 80% of your traffic comes from that. 
Yeah, and I would agree. Although it is interesting. There's some things that like if you just try to rank for real estate investing, yeah, like you're never going to do it. It's just there's way too much noise out there for that. But if you're talking about something really specific, it's actually not that hard at all. Like you could rank within a couple of days pretty easily. And there's been a few examples. A couple of years ago, I started getting into the Ahrefs website, similar to SEMrush, where it kind of helps you understand you know, this is where your website does well. These are your competitors. This is how they're ranking. This is what you're not doing well enough. And it just showed me a lot of opportunities like that, where I could find stuff that I could totally talk about. We just haven't done it yet. And if you do this, like there's already a ton of traffic out there looking for it. Nobody else has given people the answers. So that's been kind of interesting. It's not easy. It's still a ton of work, but it's helpful at understanding where you should be putting your effort or where you definitely should not be putting your effort because you're never going to rank for certain things. Should we know anything about RE Tipster before we reel back to how you got started even before that? Anything else in general? Yeah, I mean, there's probably other stuff worth noting, but it's not really coming to mind at the moment unless a specific question or issue comes up along the way. I think you've covered all the bases, just like size of your team and growth over time that, again, took basically five years. So you quit your job that you're doing full time to do this. And then now it seems like it's done pretty well. But anyone who's trying to grow a following or audience... To me, that's always been the hardest part, even though I might quote unquote have a big podcast listening audience. It's like, it's not the same as far as like having the ability that it seems like you had to quit your full-time job and go at it. So it's definitely not easy and not something that you can do overnight. Yeah. I think really part of what it comes down to is having content that is really significant and it stands out and it's clear that somebody put a lot of thought and effort into making it good. And that's something I definitely get almost immediately when I hear your podcast. It just, it sounds different. It sounds like somebody really put a lot of care into this thing. It's similar to how we put together the stuff on our blog. Like we don't publish anything unless we believe there is the potential for it to really change somebody's life. Like posting stuff just to do it is a total waste of time. Like it's got, I really have a lot of punch to it. Doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to blow up or do really well, but that belief has to be there in the first place. Yeah. And I can see that too on your website. Your website's very clean and smooth. And even if you click on a blog, I like that you have like table of contents on the side and it's very easy to read versus like maybe people who try to put up 300 word blog articles and thinking they're going to rank for something. And it's just crap, not helping anybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, I appreciate your overview of the company today. And again, you're based in Michigan. Yep. That's right. So you're born and raised there. Yes. Okay. So why don't you go ahead and jump into when you graduated college? Is that the best place to jump in? Or Yeah, sure. I guess it all kind of starts with this real estate investing idea. It's kind of like the genesis of everything. So back when I was finishing up college, I had probably a year left to go in like this knowledge of what my career was going to be. It just wasn't there. Like there wasn't this obvious path like, yes, I'm going to go do that. And that's my future. Just wasn't happening. And nothing really sounded that fun to me. And Eventually, what I did was I landed on the banking career, not because I had this love of banking, but I just it seemed like yeah, I could probably learn a lot of stuff there and I'd be able to network with important people and I could probably make a decent living there and it's good hours and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't like that was, you know, my purpose of life or anything. But around this time, I started getting introduced to books that a lot of people read books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Dave Ramsey and stuff like this. And I just it helped me realize kind of how money works in that you don't really need to take this career path that everybody takes. Like there's much better ways to do this. And one of the things a lot of these books talk about is real estate. And so I figured yeah, I could probably do that. So, okay, real estate, what next? And that was when I started with the assumption that I had to either flip houses or buy rental properties. And so that's what I started looking for. And I spent hundreds of hours looking MLS for anything that would even remotely make sense and nothing made sense. Like all the deals, like the cash flow just wouldn't be there or it would have been just this crazy risk to try to make money on a flip. And I just got really frustrated and I didn't understand how people were doing this because I couldn't find these deals out there, but I knew it must be possible. And I think one of the big fundamental problems I was having was, first of all, it was 2006 or so. It was a big bubble and real estate values were super high and it was hard to find deals. And I was only looking in the worst possible place, you know, the open market where 
realtors were involved and people were asking top dollar for the properties. But a year or two later, I discovered this a couple different things. One of them was the idea of going after vacant land properties instead of houses. And vacant land is inherently just a lower competition type of property. You know, you don't make an offer and there's 10 other people standing behind you with competing offers. It's more like, I'm going to make you this offer and I'm the only one. Maybe there might be somebody else, but like it's not cutthroat competition where we have to ask, where we have to offer over your asking price to get the deal. So that was really refreshing. And also with land, there's just not a whole lot of complexity to it. There's some issues you have to get through, but there's nothing on the property that can get broken or stolen or destroyed. And you can just sort of leave it alone. And you generally don't even need to see the thing. I mean, it's not a bad idea if you can see it or to send somebody there to get pictures for you and that kind of thing. But it's not like I need to get inside and inspect the thing. Uh, The due diligence, it's a lot easier to do this kind of thing remotely instead of having to go there physically on site. So that was really nice. And a lot of people, when they hear this idea of land, they just kind of go blank. Like they don't understand, like, why would you want to do land? And I thought that as well, because I couldn't see how land would produce cash flow. But what I didn't understand is that anything can make money if you can buy it for almost nothing in the first place. Like this applies to cars or jewelry or anything with value to it. If you're able to make an offer that's a small fraction of what it's actually worth, it's not that hard to turn around and resell that thing for a slight markup and make some pretty good money on that. And that's basically what I started doing with land. And I got a list. The first list that I started with was the delinquent tax list. And every county has one of these things. You can't always get it from them, but it's just a list of all the properties in that county that are currently delinquent on their taxes. And they still own their property, though. The county has not yet come in and seized the property from them in tax foreclosure. And the benefit of this kind of list is that because they have delinquent taxes, it usually means something. It usually means that they're kind of apathetic about the property or they can't afford it or they don't want it for whatever reason. Or maybe they inherited the property. But just the fact that they all have this thing in common of delinquent taxes, I sent out postcards to a lot of the people on this list just saying, hey, I see you own property in this county and I'm looking to buy property there. If you want to sell it, give me a call. And a lot of people did. And I was able to make just really low offers on these properties and a lot of people accepting them. Like just deals that I couldn't even fathom. Like I couldn't believe that these existed when I had spent so much time struggling and fighting with deals on the MLS. And then, you know, I just sort of go around the back door and just contact people directly who didn't even have their property listed and they were willing to sell it for just a super cheap price. And it was this big light bulb moment when I realized like just because a property doesn't have a for sale sign in the front yard doesn't mean I can't make an offer to them. And a lot of these people, it would be so easy for them to try to sell it themselves, but they still won't do it. And it's basically boils down to apathy. Like they just don't care. And what they need is somebody to come and show up, just give them an easy cash offer and kind of make it a no brainer deal for them because their alternative is they either have to pay their taxes on a property they don't want, or they can lose it to the county in tax foreclosure and get nothing. And so this idea of taking a low cash offer is a compelling reason to accept that because they're not going to do the alternatives. So it was kind of this niche I discovered that really worked well for me. And that was kind of the start of actually finding something that I could help other people with. And what year was this? So it was like the end of 2008, early 2009 is when I first started doing land deals. Okay. And you had a finance job and you were doing this real estate thing on the side as far as buying tax liens or whatever for these land properties? Yeah, correct. It was on the side. There weren't tax liens though. And that's actually one of the big misunderstandings that many people have. So a tax lien or a tax deed is when you're basically buying it from the county. Like the county has taken the property or you're paying for a lien on the property. But what I'm doing is I'm reaching out directly to the owner. So I'm cutting out the middleman. I'm not showing up at an auction or anything like that. Yeah, because I guess they broadcast whoever's late. I think you have like two years on Florida to pay it late. And that, so that way you're actually looking at those people before they even get to the tax lien process where the county actually owns the property you're saying. Yeah. And that actually is like, that's a legitimate other strategy, but it's not, it's very different than what I've been doing. And I think the, uh, the problem with it is that anytime you get involved in an auction and you invite other investors to show up, like that competition many, many times will kill a lot of the opportunities that would have been there if it had just been you and that individual seller. That's why I've never really been a huge fan of those kinds of auctions. They're just really hard to buy good deals at. I mean, it makes sense. Then why don't you tell us like about your first couple of deals, like how much you actually spent, you know, what you got in return 
I guess they were all just land properties. Yep. I've made offers on house and stuff doing this as well. It's kind of funny. A lot of household sailors out there, when they come across land deals like this, they don't know what to do with them because they have this same misconception that land is pointless and what a thing to do with it. With me, I'm the opposite where it's like, I'm looking for the land. And when I come across the houses, it's like, nah, I don't want that. But yeah, I mean, the first deal, I just started working in a county just to the north of where I live. And it was just a small half acre parcel of land. And I made an offer to this person for 331 bucks. And they said yes. And I bought the thing. And a couple of weeks later, I sold it for 1900 bucks. And this was, you know, not huge dollars here. This is not like quit your job money, but it was the start of just this realization that, hey, I made money with that. And I didn't even need an agent to do this. And I could use the money in my bank account. I didn't need a loan for that. It was super low risk. And this particular seller lived in, I remember it was Long Beach, California, and they hadn't seen the property in 20 years. And it's just a very common scenario. There's lots of people out there that own land that they just don't care about. Like they bought it a long time ago and their plans changed. And all it takes is for somebody to seek them out and make it easy. And they can create these win, win, win opportunities. And so is that what you kept doing for where you're making, I don't know, maybe five times the price, maybe even a little bit more on yeah. some of these? I get, let's just say you netted like what, 1500 on that first one or so. Is that about how much you were doing in all these little deals that you're buying up? Yeah. My first year, a lot of them were like that. I did about 30 deals similar to that. Some of them were bigger. Like I would pay a couple thousand and sell them for maybe 8,000 bucks, something like that. And one of the big bottlenecks to this process was I thought that I had to go out and like see these properties before I bought them. And while that's certainly helpful, I eventually realized you totally don't need to do that because a lot of the information you need to do to research these properties, you can do online, like on Google Earth or the county's website, or you can hire somebody to drive by the property and take pictures for you. So eventually I started doing bigger ones and I looked in places that were so far away, I couldn't really drive to them and started doing deals that would, you know, maybe cost me 5,000 bucks to buy and I could sell for like 30 to 50,000 bucks. And I found that those deals actually take like about the same amount of time to work through. They're just a little bit harder to find because usually when you go higher and higher in value, the seller is going to be wiser and wiser to that, or they're just, you know, they're not just going to throw away a ton of money like this. It does happen, but you just have to kind of search a little bit harder to find them. And so you were just looking at properties in Michigan still, or were you expanding further than that? Yeah. So there was a deal I did in 2011. It was a 12 acre parcel on Lake Huron. And this is kind of a big milestone deal for me. I talk about it a lot because a lot of discoveries came up through this, but you know, 12 acres on Lake Huron, 500 feet of beach frontage. I bought it for 4,500 and sold it for 45,000. And when I got through the entire process, it took me about five months to do that. I never saw the property. And to this day, I've never seen the property. And that was when I realized like, I don't need to do this in Michigan anymore. Like there's just no reason I have to limit myself to this. That was when I started looking in other states and developing other things in the business that kind of made it easier to find leads elsewhere and kind of expanded beyond that. So I guess, how long did you do this for buying the land and slowly upgrading your prices and profit margins on these? Well, that's still what I'm doing today. It's just, I don't do a whole lot of volume. Like I probably do like, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen deals a year kind of thing. And it's more of a something that I probably spend like three to five hours a week on average, as opposed to like all of my time, because I've sort of chosen to focus more on RE Tipster stuff. So I kept doing more and more of that. I think when RE Tipster started, that was sort of the beginning of when the use of my time kind of slowly started to shift because it had to, because I didn't have enough hours in the day to do it all. And as RE Tipster became more and more of a proven concept and I saw the impact it was making and that kind of thing, it was like, maybe I'll start doing more of this and, you know, minimize the time spent on chasing after land deals. Well, I guess it sounds like maybe about four or five years that you did this for the land deals before you started doing the RE Tipster. Yep, that's right. So how much were you making, I guess, up till even before RE Tipsters? Because it sounds like, you know, especially you talked about that one deal making over 40K on it. But on the side, like how much were you making doing this? Yeah, I mean, it was probably, I mean, it was definitely more than my job was making me. But the problem I was having mentally with the land business was the way I was doing it. I was intentionally choosing to go after only cash deals. Cash meaning I would buy cash and then I would sell it cash. So the person who bought it for me, they had to have the cash or I wasn't going to sell it to them. 
And because of that, it made my income very spiky. Like some months would be awesome. And then some months would have nothing. And it was hard to rely on that. And the alternative that a lot of people will do when they're focusing 100% on their land business is they'll get involved in seller financing. And that basically just means, I think Doug Smith episode, was it 182 of your podcast? He talked about this a little bit. I don't really know the ins and outs of his business, but he's basically like the biggest version of this that I've ever heard of, just in terms of how big his numbers are. But what a lot of people will do is they will buy a vacant land parcel for you know one of these super cheap prices, but instead of selling it for cash, they will offer seller financing. And the reason that's a really big deal is because in many, many cases, a bank is not going to finance a piece of vacant land. I don't want to say never, but like you know, if you're talking about like a one acre, $10,000 piece of land that the buyer has no plans to improve or do anything with, they're just going to keep it vacant. A bank wants nothing to do with that because the value of that property is too hard for them to verify and it's not reliable from a collateral standpoint. So if you, as the seller of that land, offer seller financing, it allows a person to buy the property without having to have all of the cash up front. And you can charge 10% interest as a common number, or you can do 0% interest. It's whatever you want to work out so that it makes sense for both you and them. And the benefit of doing seller financing is that it kind of smooths out your income. And a lot of times a person can make most of their money back, like on the down payment or shortly thereafter. And after that, all the future payments are kind of like pure profit. And the downside is it takes a lot longer to get your cash back, but it's also creating streams of income. And I had done that for a little while and I just kind of got tired of dealing with some of the hassles with that. So I chose to focus more on cash deals. And because of that decision, it made my income a lot more spiky and harder to rely on. So it sounds simple what you're saying, but then I'm wondering like how much time is spent like trying to market and getting these, because especially today, man, I get so many spam texts about you want to sell your house, right? And I don't know if the same yeah. idea with land, but like for you to find these buyers and do all that is where's most of your work going into on these deals and then on selling it as well. Just kind of walk me through like time-wise, how much time that might take. Yeah. So with houses, at least, you know, every house wholesaler I know of, it's actually usually pretty easy to get them sold. What's hard about houses is finding the deals in the first place. With land, it's sort of the opposite, where it's actually not that hard to find deals. If anything is the bottleneck, it's the selling process. It just, it just takes a while to sell the things. And I think a big contributor to that is which market you're working in, because in some markets, land will actually sell pretty quick because it's a place where a lot of people want to be. In other markets, it can take a long time because there's not hordes of people moving there. It's not like this vacation hotspot that has this big aspirational value. For example, like when you look at the state of Florida, like there's a lot of reasons why people want to go to Florida. You've got warm weather and there's Disney World there and there's all kinds of stuff going on in Florida. When you compare that to like North Dakota, it's a completely different world. Florida is actually a fairly popular place to do this kind of thing because properties sell pretty quickly there. If people do this, and this is actually one of the issues I found in Michigan, was that it just took longer for stuff to sell. It's not like it's a terrible place to be, but it's not as popular as other places. So if you can pick a market where... You don't have to fight this uphill battle to get properties sold. That'll help you out a lot. So in terms of like where the time is spent, I think once you get your direct mail strategy dialed in, like you figure out where to get your list and how you're going to filter it and what you're going to say and how you're going to price your offers, it can actually become fairly automated just in terms of if you're using the right software that consistently sends the mail out and you have a good system for intake when those leads come in. I think like when you're starting out, it's going to be a time consuming process. But once the automation is there, it's not that terrible. And usually one way or another, if you're going to get stuck anywhere or, you know, spend the lion's share of your time, it's going to be promoting and selling properties, whether that's putting listings out there or answering calls and dealing with tire kickers and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being a patron. Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across the podcast a few weeks ago and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment and at the amount that you, uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier. So yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling like a looking for another podcast and yours popped up and I was like, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one and I love how in depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, mining key guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off. Yeah. With. yeah. And, 
and I'm in the franchising, okay, right? Perfect. So, well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask. You know, you hold them to numbers. And so I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah. You really did start <laughs> yeah. off with, I thought so too. Yeah. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was. And, and and he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon too. I was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple weeks, but uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode 165. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. How much were you making again before you did the RE Tipster? I know you said you make this about the same amount of your, as your salary job. I'm just curious how, how high it got. Yeah, man. Again, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I know on at least a couple of those years, it was more than my job was making. So like when I look back at the end of the year, it's like, okay, well, I guess I don't need my job, but still it's like, did I just get lucky? Like, is this going to continue? Like, is it going to take me this long all the time to sell properties? And how much were you making in your job? It was not a high paying job. I think it was making like 48,000 bucks a year. So all right. So yeah, you're making at least 50,000 each year before on the side, but again, together it added up to a hundred, right? Yeah. And my wife was working too. So yeah, I mean, just in terms of money, like it was there, it was just, it was more my fear mentality. And that's something I've always had to battle with even today. Like, am I going to have enough? Is this yeah, going to be okay? It's funny that you say that shit. Cause I'm actually a, the exact mindset, everything you're saying, because I got in big into Dave Ramsey in college too. Yeah. And so that's always been my problem with wanting to do commercial real estate or any real estate is like, I don't want to go into debt. I've never even had a credit card, you oh, know, really? to be honest, because I started listening to that, mm -hmm. dude, you know, yeah, that makes sense. my parents were always frugal and whatnot. And so what you're doing makes sense. It's this strategy where, because debt works both ways. I think people forget about that. Mm -hmm. Leverage works two ways. <laughs> it can yeah. go down and make it twice as worse as well, you know, but when people think about real estate, there's always different ways to make money. And it's just interesting how you were able to do it up till RE tipster, if you will. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh. I think it was Robert Kiyosaki who was saying that debt is kind of like a gun. Like you can use it to protect yourself and get food for yourself, or you can use it to shoot yourself. So it's it's not like it's inherently bad. It's just about understanding how to make it work for you. Right. And so up to this point, did you just think you were going to eventually start your own real estate land company before you started RE Tipster? Yeah, that was really the plan. And I kind of started RE Tipster on a whim just to like, see, can I do this? And like, I think part of what caused it was that I had been through a number of different like educational courses and stuff. And, you know, they were all helpful to a point, but like they just left so many things unexplained that I was just sort of on my own to figure out. And I ended up learning a lot of it sort of by going through the ringer myself and also being part of different mastermind groups where like just these huge revelations came out just from what other people were experiencing. And I saw the power of that. And it's like, man, if I hadn't learned this, how much time would I have wasted in my life just struggling with the worst way to do something? And so I was like, hey, I, I know a thing or two. Like I've got a decent library of knowledge in my brain. So I'm just going to put this out there and hopefully I can save somebody all the hassle I had to go through. That was kind of the idea behind it. And it, it ended up working pretty well. But I mean, even before you started making an educational point, and I understand that because you said you paid for courses. And I think that's important no matter what, whoever's listening, it's like whatever niche you want to go into, like find ones that kind of help you give you a template. So it sounds like they kind of gave you a template, but didn't give you everything you wanted. So maybe you can make a better version of it. Right. Yeah. That's kind of the idea. But I mean, from my point of view, was it not going well enough that you thought, why do I even need to put an educational component? Now I'm smart enough where I've learned all these trials and tribulations that I just want to keep doing land buying. Like what made you, I guess, kind of focus on being an education guy instead of just doing land? Yeah. You know, it's actually interesting. I haven't thought about that in a while, but I believe the actual genesis of this, I was doing this attempted software partnership where we were going to try to, when I say software, it's actually sort of like this deal sourcing website we were trying to put together, me and another land investor and a software developer friend of mine. So we were trying to create this thing and the software developer friend, his idea was, hey, in order to get attention to this, we need to write blog posts. So let's do that. And, you know, we were just going to go around and we were each going to do one. And when it came my turn to do it, 
I was explaining how to do a title search. And at the time, I also made a video about it, which actually like in hindsight, it wasn't even that great of a video, but I just really enjoyed the end product. And the two partners I was working with, they were both like, whoa, like this was really good. And after experiencing that and like sort of just seeing like, hey, there's something here. Like this is not just, this wasn't just some job. Like I'm actually not bad at this. That was kind of the beginning of realizing maybe there's something else I was made to do. Maybe I should look more into that. It's not that there was anything wrong with the land business. It was kind of this issue of enjoyment and just, you know, what is the highest and best use of Seth's brain? And perhaps it's this instead of that. So you think you're getting bored of what you're doing? A little bit. I will say a lot of people experience burnout and I was definitely getting to that point of like, it is super exciting to do your first dozen or even 20 or 50 deals. But at some point it kind of just becomes the same old thing and you're just peddling this thing and it keeps cash coming in, but it's not really what you want to do forever. It's more of a stepping stone to something else. And for me, it was a stepping stone to Ari Tipster. So yeah, I guess after you made that one blog post and you were doing it because you thought you were going to make a SaaS company, then you just started enjoying that and said, hey, maybe I'll just put more education online. Yeah, the website that we were trying to create as a team, it fizzled out fairly quickly, just in terms of different people coming to the realization, like we don't actually have what it takes to do this. But the one good thing that did come out of that was my experience doing the blogging thing and figuring out that I had something there. And so tell us more about this transition. How long it might have taken? Was it on RE Tipster or was it on some other site, I imagine, first? Yeah, that's the interesting thing. So it's one thing to realize like, hey, it was fun to make this blog post. Yippee. But how do you go from there to actually like a money making business? And that was around the time when I got introduced to Pat Flynn and Smart Passive Income because he actually was a pretty good proven concept of not just writing good blog posts and making good videos, but actually like being able to make money from that. He was a really good template or just example of like, how do you do this? Like, how do you have that kind of personality and put real value into the world without selling stuff and still make money from it somehow? And I kind of realized there was something special there. So he was a big part of me just seeing the opportunity and understanding, okay, so that's how I could take good information and find ways to eventually make money from it. Did you stop doing as much land buying and just kind of started focusing on making more content? You bet. So something, one development that happened over the years was, you know, originally, and I think any new land investor, the way you get started is with direct mail. And the downside is that it costs money. It's not really cheap to do that. But the upside is you can get really targeted and specific about which market you're trying to go after and what types of properties you want to go after and all this stuff. And so that's what I'd done for a long time. But in the meantime, the same developer friend that I was working on this failed joint venture with, he had created a website for me where instead of having people call me and me having to spend like 30 minutes on the phone with them just to say, nope, this isn't going to work. Just a huge time suck. Instead, I could send a lot of those people to my website. And in my website, there would be a form that would ask all the same questions I would have asked them on the phone and they could submit their property information and I would get an email in my inbox and I could then just send them a really quick email with my offer that way in like 30 seconds instead of 30 minutes. And something that I found happening as this website was living out there is that a lot of people started finding the website. Like I didn't send them mail or anything. I don't know if they were Googling, I think they were Googling like sell my land fast or some combination of similar terms. And they would find my website up there and they'd just show up and dump their property information. I would get tons of free leads that way. So the upside was that it didn't take me nearly as much time or cost to send out mail. I could just get them in my inbox and send offers that way. And a lot of people still weren't interested. It was a similar conversion rate, but it just happened a lot faster. So it wasn't as time consuming. Anyway, so I kind of transitioned to doing a lot of those types of offers and doing deals that way, which made it possible to do both our tipster and make a lot of offers at the same time. And as time went on, like probably, I think I generally, by the time RA Tips just started, I was already trying to focus more on higher value deals instead of just going after every single thing that came in the door that was worth very little amount of money. So that was kind of a conscious effort. And I think a lot of people who do this kind of thing full time, like it's their only gig, they will go after everything or everything that, whether it's super expensive or super cheap. And I kind of had to make a conscious decision that I've got limited time and I'm only going to go after things that are really going to be a slam dunk. And again, you still had your other job too. What was the job this whole time, your actual nine to five? 
Yeah. So I was also doing commercial real estate financing. I was working with a small company that did SBA 504 loans. And I was in charge of you know handling applications for people who wanted to get approved and also getting loans closed. It's actually, I didn't plan it this way, but there was a lot of stuff in that job that ended up being beneficial as a real estate investor, just different understanding what's going on when a transaction closes and why certain financials and documents are important and that kind of thing. So that was my day job. So you're a nonstop real estate. Yeah, it was, I guess it still is kind of intense, but for a while there, it was insane. Like every spare moment I had, every weekend, every night, it was just constant plugging away at stuff. So, And were you like a broker doing that? No, I wasn't a broker. I was uh, kind of like a back office rat who rarely saw the light of day, kind of like a credit analyst for a bank. Gotcha. And so, yeah, this was your opportunity to not be a rat, not be in an analyst position. So again, because even if it wasn't in real estate, you're still getting that financial sense of what's possible and whatnot. But especially because it was real estate, I mean, it still helps because you're still learning certain terms and whatnot. I mean, financially, did everything work well up till real estate tipster? And then I guess it took a few years for you to finally start making a decent income from that. Yeah. So one of the things that I always loved about the land business and one of the reasons my wife actually got okay with it as well was just the fact that like you don't need loans. And when you're buying stuff for such a cheap price, it's not impossible, but like it's really, really hard to get burned. Did you ever lose money at all on any of those land deals? Yeah, there was one deal. It was this tiny little sliver of land that it kind of came down to just due diligence, stupidity. Like I didn't really understand the map I was looking at. And I was basically looking at the wrong property. <laughs> so I bought something that I didn't realize what I was buying. And I paid like 327 bucks for it. And uh, when I bought the thing and I finally got to it and realized, oh, I totally screwed this up. The property that I did end up buying was so small, it wasn't usable for anything. Like it was just a pointless piece of land. And so I ended up contacting the next door neighbor and just saying, hey, you want some free land? I'll sign you a deed. And they're like, okay. So I just gave them the property and lost my few hundred bucks and I invested. <laughs> the most challenging thing of doing the land deals, I think you said once you got your systems in, it was okay. Is it like, were you mailing these things out? Or like, I guess because the, the mailers were your main source of getting the leads in, right? Yeah, for a long time. You know, I think back when I started doing this, there was not the kind of software that is available today. Nowadays, there's software really specialized for the land investing business and even real estate investors as a whole that gives you a lot of automation, like sending mail on autopilot and processing leads automatically when they come in and all this stuff. And none of that was available back then. So I had random spreadsheets and post-it notes all over the place. And a lot of time was wasted that, you know, it really shouldn't be and it, it wouldn't be today. So. What do you recommend for software today versus kind of how you did it? Yeah, well, like, for example, and this was actually pretty novel even back then, but when sending out my first direct mail campaign, I used a website called Click2Mail. And I guess even by today's standards, it's still kind of cool. It's just not the best thing out there anymore. But you could upload your message onto a postcard template or a letter, and it would literally print and ship from the facility. So like, I'm not printing all this stuff out on my inkjet printer. I'm not stuffing envelopes, not licking stamps, none of that stuff. That's a horrible waste of time. It can just literally do it in a few minutes from this website. And nowadays there's just more advanced versions of that that are kind of tailored for real estate investors specifically, not just all direct mail marketers and ways that you can say, hey, I want to send out 50 letters a day. Just do that no matter what and pull it from this list. And also just in terms of like what you tell the person to do, like one strategy is to literally send them an offer, like on the very first piece of mail they get, there's a number in there and they can accept it or they can reject it. And that's one way that can save a lot of time because from the very first point of contact, they kind of understand where you're coming from and what your number is going to be instead of like, say, yeah, give me a call. We'll talk about it for an hour and I'll get to know you and then I'll make my offer and then you'll tell me to go screw myself. Like it's not that anymore. So just a lot of stuff I didn't understand and also just resources that weren't available back then. Well, if there's one, what's your top resource? If I know you said you used to use click to mail and I know people can find out more by checking out your website, I'm sure, and some of the courses they have it, but just curious if anyone wanted to check it out. I guess one of the other, because I'm curious, because I used to have to do similar with my mailing and it's so funny, like I'd make mailers where I would literally do exactly kind of what you said. I first would print them off on my inkjet printer, but then I found someone at a FedEx or Kinko's that I'd send the mail merge to and have them do it, you know, and I agree with you because it's, it's such a time suck or whatever, but 
but it was like one of those things I had to do for marketing. So I'm just curious even what's out there today compared to when you did it. Yeah. So a couple of the newer ones, there's one called Pebble. Actually, there's an affiliate link I've got. It's retipster.com forward slash Pebble, P-E-B-B-L-E. And this is one that's really designed specifically for land investors and real estate investors. And it allows you to upload a template. You can send out a postcard or a letter and you can do this thing where it's like, hey, I want 30 or 50 or 100 per day to go out. And the benefit of doing that is that if it's not working, you can figure that out before you commit to sending out like 5,000 at a time. So that's why that's a significant thing. And also like- Is it Pebble REI? Yep, that's it. Well, I just tried it. You try it. Try your affiliate link. Try Incognito. Yeah, let me try that quick. You're right. What the heck? Messed up. It's like something's wrong with the website, man, right? That's good to know, man. You probably just saved me all kinds of trouble. <laughs> yeah, I'll email them right after this and say, what's going on? All right, because I'm like looking for bigger ones and I'm like, it sounds like a bigger company, but okay. Yeah, I'm glad you did Incognito too, so you knew. All right, cool. Yeah, huh, that's weird. So yeah, so maybe Pebble's not working right now. Is there any other ones? And you can give us your affiliate too. Yeah, another one. Actually, I don't have this set up yet, but I'll set it up as soon as we're done here. It's called uh, Rocket Print, retipster.com forward slash Rocket Print. Yeah, this one is a little bit different where I think it's more ideal for people who are sending out just like tons and tons and tons of mail, like 5,000 to 15,000 at a time. It ends up being a little bit cheaper and they've actually got some really good design services to help you come up with a unique design for your postcard and that kind of thing. So if you're looking for like cheap and really good customer service, Rocket Print is another pretty solid option. And click to mail certainly still work. I don't mean that's like unacceptable. It's just there's other better options out there now. And actually, yeah, when I ch click the mail, that looked like the most friendly, at least on the desktop screen, as far as understanding it. Like, it just sounds like it's not specifically for real estate. Maybe the other two yep. closer to for real estate, but anyone could use that too, right? So they could look up that or competitors. Just again, some people don't know that this service even exists, you know? So I think just having an idea of even if you're not in the real estate niche that you can find stuff like that help with marketing. Yeah. There's also letterprinting.net. I use that one for a lot of years. And again, like you said, they can all work. It's just certain ones have nice little features that other ones don't have. And it's like, if you're able to have a letter go in the mail and get some leads from that, just keep that in mind for anyone who's listening now, no matter what type of business you're in, that could be an option that may be worth trying out. Yeah. I think when it comes to direct mail, like probably the single most important thing, if you had to distill it down, is getting the right people, just sending whatever your offer is to somebody who actually needs it, like a relevant person in the audience. And there are certainly ways to drill down, but there's always going to be that waste, especially in direct mail. People who either they are the right fit, but they're not going to respond or people that just never should have gotten it in the first place. So if you can fix that problem from the very beginning, it'll help a lot. And then also when it comes to like copywriting and that kind of thing, some people have a good brain for that. They just understand what people will respond to. And if there is a way you can make yours unique or stand out, some pretty ingenious things I've seen out there that work really well. Like what? Yeah. So one got on not long ago, I think it was maybe even a credit card company or something, but there was this stamp on the outside of the envelope that, you know, when I looked closer, it was obviously printed on everything they sent out, but it had like these two boxes on it. And one of them was checked that said confirmed delivery or something like that. Basically just to look like, oh yeah, this came through FedEx or something overnight. And the person, it kind of just gave you that, like when you just look at it for a split second, you're like, huh, what's this? I don't normally see this on envelopes. So it just kind of made me look closer at it instead of just throwing it away without thinking twice. It's funny because I remember like these Twitter spam messages I got. Mm -hmm. It was like it's such bullshit. They're like they misspelled the last word and then automatically send another message like, oops, sorry, I didn't have my coffee this morning. But then <laughs> I had two people send me that in a row, like in the same day. I'm like, okay. hey, that's clever. I, I like it because now it doesn't look automated. Right. But <laughs> you could cross out someone's name on the envelope and then accidentally put their, you know, there's little things you can do. Yeah. Like you said, it kept you from throwing something out and actually took a look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess kind of wrapping up your story in summary, I mean, I think that we could walk through everything with Ari Tipster in the beginning and kind of how you made that transition eventually. I mean, is there anything else in your story that you think is important that people know before we get off? Yeah, you know, it's, I think I just feel really blessed and fortunate to have been able to find more than one thing that I can do that isn't miserable and it's fun. You know, I would just encourage people out there, if you haven't found it, keep looking and don't be afraid to try and fail at stuff because that's how you learn. And I don't know, I just, I can't imagine if I was still working in my job that like 
was just sort of a mediocre existence. It wasn't miserable, but like it wasn't what I was made to do. And it's just a huge discovery if you can find that thing that's really going to make your heart sing. Kind of thing that makes you excited to go to work every day. And for some people, they literally never find it or they don't find it until they're in their 40s or 50s or something like that. But keep searching because it's there. Was difficult in your story because it seemed like it all worked out pretty easily. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, back in my college years when I couldn't figure out what to do and I just sort of landed on banking because it seemed like a safe bet. It wasn't bad. It's not like I seriously regret the decision given what I knew at the time. But I also know like a lot of people sort of just land in that place and they just kind of stay there because it's like, well, this is okay. I'm surviving. I have enough money. It's fine. Whatever. But like, I don't know, it can get so much better. Like, for example, I say this to people these days, like on Monday morning, when I walk into my office, I kind of feel like a kid who is running through the gates of Disney World for the first time. I'm just like, I'm just over the moon. Like, I can't decide what I want to do first. Like, it's fun. It's exciting. Like, I love what I'm doing. And I don't know that many people who feel that way about their work. And when you can spend your whole life doing that, like, how big of a deal is that? It's just the difference between a happy existence and kind of a maybe even a miserable one if you aren't willing to take risks and figure out what that is to find it. Have you always felt that way about Ari Tipster? Yeah, so far. I mean, there's days that are harder than others, but even on the worst days, like it's still pretty good. It's not like it's, I just want to quit and throw in the towel and I hate what I'm doing. Like I've never felt that way. Maybe that day is coming. It'll be really sad if it ever does, but yeah, so far it's been really, really great. So have you never felt like you were going to stop RE Tipster when, especially when it wasn't making enough money in the beginning? Yeah, there were a couple times like within that first year when I had been working at it really hard for a long time when I was sort of wondering like, is this worth it? Is this ever going to go anywhere? And I think, yeah, I mean, if it had never made a dime or probably even more importantly, if, if there was never any traffic coming to the website, I probably would not have stuck with it. But part of what makes it rewarding is seeing the impact and the interest and the responses that it's generating from other people. So if I was just like talking in an empty tunnel, yeah, that would be a different story. But seeing the results is a big part of that, I think. Yeah. So what have you thought of our group call so far? I like the group call so far. I like how insightful it is. And it's kind of an extension of your interviews. That's how it feels. And I think that if anybody has a real project they're working on, they can benefit a lot from it. One thing that made me want to join was when you shared the first group call. And I heard that episode, I'm like, this is a nice little community. It's friendly, it's genuine. And so that was helpful. My last name, which is, is a very renowned last name on the island. There are only two branches of this family. One is extremely rich. What I mean by rich is this family, they're billionaires. So that's you. I'm the other branch. <laughs> that's what you want to be <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. so if you want to jump on a call with yours truly and discuss how to become a billionaire well then join patreon today is there like one book or one thing that you think has like really helped with your success as far as time management or trying to get things done? I know you said when we started off that you had a to-do list of things to do today, but just curious because I think there's sometimes little things that we forget about that might help people and maybe something that's helped you start your own business and stay organized and be efficient. Yeah, you know, I've read a couple of good books by Mike Michalowicz, Profit First and Clockwork, and those have been helpful from just like an entrepreneurial standpoint, understanding how to manage finances and manage people and that kind of thing. Another book that's been really helpful kind of just in life in general is the book Crucial Conversations. Have you ever read that? No, I haven't. It's all about like how to have the hard conversations in life, conversations that are like awkward. Nobody really wants to talk about it, but it needs to be said. And there's a potential to like offend and hurt. It's like a high stakes situation, but it kind of walks you through how to do this in such a way that by the time you're done with the conversation, everybody walks away glad that it happened. Like everybody feels better about it because that awkward thing was handled very tactfully and in a good way. And that's something that at least speaking for myself, I don't know how to do that naturally. If I'm hurt or offended, that's probably just going to come out or I'll just avoid it. And neither one of those things are good. So if there's a way to like really handle it 
well, that's a huge deal. And it can really kind of change the path of your life in some cases, like maintain or open up relationships that would otherwise be shut down if you don't handle it right. So that book, I think really just for life in general is huge. Have I hurt or offended you yet? Not yet, but... Is there anything I can do to do that? I will tactfully let you know if you have. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think the whole conversation we're having now is I think it's just opening. And thank you for sharing like how much money you made and whatnot. Like, I think they say people rather talk about sex than how much money they made, which to me is kind of just weird. Yeah, it's weird. You know, but I think it just helps when I have these conversations with people like yourself, because I think some people just don't know how to set themselves up for success or what successful people do. Sometimes there's little things that I don't ask that, or maybe that I do ask that opens people's minds up to, okay, you know, this is what they do. This is what they did to be successful and whatnot. And again, it, it took you quite a three or four years at least to quit your other job and you're making money doing something else beforehand, but it takes time. I think it's the main thing at the end of the day. It's not like an overnight thing. Yeah. And also just realizing like somebody's hearing my story or if I'm hearing somebody else's story, like everybody has their own unique strengths and weaknesses, like things that they're naturally going to excel at or that they're going to enjoy. I always find these conversations fascinating as well, but it's important to be aware that like you may be amazing at something that I'm horrible at. So maybe there is a different path that would make way more sense for you that I just can't do because that's not what I'm good at. (laughs) So I think to the extent that you can know yourself, whether that's through taking some assessment or just taking really good inventory of your life experiences and what things have worked out well and not well for you, that can play a huge role too. Like there's things I finally know about myself in my late thirties that I can say like, I'm not going to do that because I know it's probably not going to go well for me. Or even if it does, I'm not going to enjoy the experience. So I'm going to go this way instead. And that's something that's easier to do the older you get. But I think just being very cognizant and paying attention to that can help you out a lot. What are you not going to do? You know, I don't think I'm ever going to be a big like public speaker, like somebody who gets up in front of like Tony Robbins. Yeah, exactly. That's (laughs) (laughs) well, I don't think he's actually the worst. I think some people need some motivation stuff. There's other people that I would say, but I don't even want to bring their name to public light, you know, but I know exactly what you're talking about because that's why I'm doing this too. I think we come from just different angles and niches, if you will. Like it's just, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So yeah, no matter how much money I make or don't make, I'll never be to that level of like needing my self-confidence boosted. Yeah. But hopefully people after a while learn that that's kind of a shallow way of doing it. And usually the people who are flaunting their money or flaunting how intelligent they are usually are kind of the opposite. Yeah, I know. It's it's weird, man. Especially when you start to talk to a lot of these people who I can't tell you how many people have tried to like partner with me over the years because like, hey, I want to basically what it boils down to is I want to leverage the trust you've built on RE Tipster to sell my stuff. And you kind of have these conversations with them and you hear what their real motivations are and what they actually care about. And it sort of is as slimy as you think it is. Like, it's not really about how many people can I help? It's more like how many sales come through and how can I leverage this person and money, 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 money. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. I really hope that at the end of my life, you know, I can be remembered as somebody who was different and was actually helpful and kind of motivated by the right things. And hopefully I'll be successful at that. I mean, it seems like you're on your way. I mean, you want to have this reach right now. It seems like it's all going the right direction. People vibe with different people, right? So some people just need those quick hits where they think they're going to get and they need to buy a course that rips them off once to feel like, okay, that's not the way to go. I'm sure there's plenty of people in the real estate and issue like, okay, I like the way the Seth Williams guy is straight talker and I feel like he's not going to lie to me versus some of these other guys, it seems like who are out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. If anyone wanted to reach out and say thank you or check out more about your website, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, so you go over to retipster.com and if you scroll all the way to the bottom in the footer, there's a little contact button and that'll take you to a page where you can send me an email if you want. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on, Seth. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Austin. Hey, you looking for some more real estate interviews in our awesome podcast? Well, don't worry. I got you covered. Here's some more episodes for you to try. Episode 182 with Doug Smith or number 173 with Marco Santarelli. Another great one is episode 151 with Sarah Dusick of Under Canvas or episode 125 with Thomas McCormick. And last but not least, episode 116 with Michael Cole. 